Well, today we are in the second part of our series, Learning to Read. And no, we are not talking about how to learn to read in general. Hopefully, all of you in our audience have that down already. Um, we're talking about learning to read God's Word, the Bible. And even more specifically, we are talking about learning to read the Bible in a way that actually changes us and results in us becoming more like Jesus. Last week, we talked about talk, uh, taking your Bible reading to the next level. That whether you're a beginner when it comes to reading the Bible or you've been reading for years, Years and feel like that habit has become lifeless and stuck, there is a next level of reading the Bible that God has for you. And whenever we move to the next level, God meets us at the next level and God pushes us to a place that, that we've never been before. And God moves us forward in our relationship with him. So last week we talked about the levels of approaching God's word that we read, we understand, we trust, and we apply. And as we keep moving forward, we keep growing in our understanding and our connection with our Heavenly Father. And I left off last week with a specific challenge to stay in the shallow until the shallow becomes deep. To dig and dig and dig into God's Word, even the fundamental foundational, skip over them because we've read them all before passages and until we mine the depths of God's Word spoken and written to us. And so that's where we were last week. And as we move into the new content today, here's where we're going to go with this one. We're going to tackle something that I feel is a very important question if we're really taking the Bible seriously, if we're asking, if we're asking us to trust the Bible, as we talked about last week, maybe that third step, and to study the Bible, to really understand and study and trust the Word of God, here is an incredibly important question that we're going to answer today. And the question is simply this, how can I trust the Bible as God's Word? How can I trust the Bible as God's Word? And here, that, that, that is a big question. And that's a big question for two reasons. The first one is simply this. There is something in you and in me that wants to believe that if there's a God out there, he actually cares enough to speak to us and communicate with us about the relationship he desires to have with us. If there's a God who has not communicated clearly on that level, that God would be one of two things. He would be either uncaring or unreliable. Uncaring, meaning he's not caring if you know how to relate because he's not interested in a relationship, or he'd be unreliable. It's a God who can't make up his mind about his expectations for you or for himself. And neither of those is a God worth following or believing in. That if there, that we want to believe that if there's a God out there, he has made himself known. He has made himself shown. He has spoken clearly. And we believe that in the Bible, God has spoken clearly, but we want to make sure that we can actually trust what God has spoken clearly. So there's something in us that wants to believe that the Bible is from God and can be counted on. But the second reason is all the, is all the things that maybe have made it difficult, maybe things that you've heard, maybe things that you experienced in your home, maybe things that you experienced in culture, maybe things that you experienced when you jump on Twitter or when you jump on Google and you read articles about the Bible and everything that culture has told us about the Bible. There's a lot of stuff around us that might make us question the trustworthiness of the Bible as God's word. There might be some social pressure to it. Maybe it's maybe you grew up in a family where they clung to a verse or two in a time of need, and since God didn't seem to come through like they thought, that means in the, in the family that you grew up in, you were told the Bible isn't 
true. And if you talk about the Bible around them, you get an earful about how the Bible is not true. Maybe you're like on, on a college campus or you've been on a college campus and in your freshman psychology and ancient history and in ancient lit classes, the professor spent about half the time going about over the class material and the other half of the time they made it their personal mission to prove why the Bible was wrong. You don't know why that was in psychology class. You're not entirely sure why that was in ancient history class. You're not really sure that why that was in a literature class, but it, they made it their personal mission to go at and undermine your faith in the Bible. Maybe you have, or you've heard some of these arguments in culture or on Twitter, or on Google, or on, on, on anywhere for, or from people that you know and care about. Maybe you've heard the conflicting argument. Well, what about the statements where the Bible seems to contradict itself. I'm just going to answer that. First of all, there are not as many times as people have made it out to be, and the seemingly conflict passages usually happen by isolating things that were not meant ever to be isolated. Maybe you've heard this one. What about how Old Testament God seems very different from New Testament God? Have you ever seen that where you read scripture or maybe you heard someone argue like, well, Old Testament God sure does seem different from New Testament God. Are we sure they're the same God? God, here's the answer to that. God has always known how and what will speak to people at different points in history. And he's always known how to show different aspects of himself at different points in history to reveal his greatness and his glory and his grace in a way that they could understand and that they could process and that they could receive and understand something about God at that point in history. Maybe you've heard the argument, well, what about science? What about those times where in some of the early parts of the Bible, there's, there's stuff about that, you know, this is how God did, and this is how God did, and this is how the world was, and this is how science was, and that the, what we know about science would seem to contradict what God said in the Bible. And here's what I would come, would help us, hopefully help us understand. I think there's room in the Christian faith to understand that parts of the origin story are metaphor and poetic language, and the best understanding and best interpretation with limited knowledge 3,500 years ago or 4,000 years ago, that what was said then was meant as a metaphor. It was meant as poetry. It was not meant to be a, here's a scientific statement. It was metaphor and it was poetic to help us understand a larger truth about God, not necessarily the end all be all about how the earth function scientifically. And I would also say that when that we have to understand also that we say God created in the beginning God created, but we are not always told how. We're told that God did, we're not always told how. And so when science seems to find something that seems to answer the how, our response as Christians should always be, "Oh, well that's how God did it." Cool. Like, we don't have to argue with science. We don't have to argue with science. The Bible does not actually contradict science in the way that we think the Bible contradicts science. And then here's another question that you may have, and here's the big one that we're going to answer today. What about all the translating and the human handling? Can we trust that what we have today is what was first communicated and ultimately intended? Like, can we be sure that after all of the translating and after all the human handling over the years and the passing down and the passing down and the passing down and the copying, copy, copy, can we be sure that what we have today, how can we be sure that what we have today actually reflects what God spoke at that time? And this is the one I want to spend a lot of time on today because this matters. It may make for a somewhat dry sermon, although I'm going to do my best to keep it fresh and alive. But if we understand what I'm about to, to teach you, it will exponentially grow your trust in the reliability of God's word to us that we know as 
the Bible. Now, to help us understand where we're going today, we ultimately need to, to, or to answer this question, we need to ultimately understand three concepts. It's the concept of inspiration, preservation, and translation. Inspiration, preservation, and translation. Now, to start with inspiration, here's what inspiration is. Inspiration is the message of God communicated through human authors. It's the message of God communicated through human authors. Now, sometimes this, this is how we got the Bible. Okay, this is how we got the word, the documents that we know as the Bible. See, sometimes we, we get into, we can become guilty of thinking as we go, well, God wrote the Bible or Jesus wrote the Bible. No, no, that is not what happened. Every document that makes up the Bible has a human author. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you want to know who wrote those? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You want to know who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah. You want to know who wrote Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Like the, every single document that we have that makes up the Bible, it has a human author. And if you ask the question, well, then how is that God's word? Here's the way that I think we have to think about it. If there is a boss or a CEO or an owner of a large worldwide company, they have things that they want to communicate and a tone with which they want to communicate. But they also have a writing and communication staff. And it is the job of the writing and communication staff to take the message of the CEO, involve the tone of the CEO, and get the message and tone of the CEO out to the entire company. They tell what the overall message is and the tone and spirit with which, with which the things want to be communicated. The boss originates the message and it's his message communicated through his writing staff. The authors of scripture, they are the writing staff of CEO God. Here's what we're told in 2 Timothy 3 verses 14 through 17. We're told, but you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true for you know you can trust those who taught you. You can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus. And then in verse 16, Paul wrote this, all Scripture is inspired by God, or is breathed by God, meaning it's God's message, it's God's tone communicated by human authors taking the pen and writing what God told them to write. All scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So the Bible, it's inspired by God from the mind and the heart of God for the people of God, but it's penned by human authors. And to give a little bit of perspective on this, why, why I would say that this is, this is inspired, how we can know this is inspired, this is recorded by 40 authors over roughly 1,500 years with at least eight different literary styles. So talk about literary styles for just a moment. In the Old Testament literary styles are this. You have the origins. This is Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. You have the law, which is the middle part of Exodus through the end of, Deut uh, through the end of Deuteronomy. You have the, the books of history of the nation of Israel. You have books of poetry, and you have books of prophetic writing, both what we call major prophets and minor prophets. These are the different styles that take place across the Old Testament. It's important to understand 
biblical literary styles because we don't read poetry and prophetic writing the same way. We don't read law and, and, and history the same way. We, we, under, we have to understand what we're reading in order to understand what we're reading. In the New Testament, you have a couple different styles. You have the Gospels, and you have early church history. You have Paul's letters. You have the apostles' letters. The people who spent, the 12 guys who spent time with Jesus, a number of them wrote letters. Paul wrote letters and was believed as an, as, as an apostle among the early church. And then you have prophetic writing in the book of Revelation. So here's the reason I tell you that. All of these people, these 40 different authors, are writing across the course of 1,500 years, writing in eight different literary styles. They are all telling one story with remarkable similarity, remarkable consistency, remarkable accuracy. And for the most part, these people never met or spoke to each other ever in the course of their lifetimes. There is no, well, hey, we all got to get together and make sure we're writing this hit that. They weren't contemporaries of one another. There was no great plan. This was God speaking to 40 different men and women to help them know, here's the message that I want communicated for all of time about my strength, about my power, about my love, and ultimately about my plan of grace and salvation for all of mankind. It's almost, almost as if there was someone working behind the scenes, getting everyone on the same page. And it's no human person. There was someone working behind the scenes, getting everyone on the same page. God worked behind the scenes throughout the course of 1,500 years, inspiring these 40 men and women to write the story, the covenant, the encouragement, the instruction, the plans, and the directions, and the promises, so they could write one consistent word about how to connect with the one true God. That's what it means when we say the Bible is inspired, that God worked through human authors to get his consistent word across so that we would know how to connect with him because he's reliable and because he does want a relationship with us, he inspired a word so that we could know how to approach him. Now, the second word that we'd mentioned is the word preservation. Preservation is the handling of ancient texts to maintain integrity and authenticity of the original documents. It's the handling of ancient texts to maintain integrity and authenticity of original documents. Now, to understand this, this is, this is going to be a little bit about how the Bible came to be, how we came to get the Bible that we have today. The Old Testament was canonized or, for, or like accepted in its final form around 300 BC. So 300 years before Jesus would walk the earth, the Old Testament was believed to be finalized. For many years, the oldest surviving Hebrew manuscript was known as the Masoretic Text from, nine, from about 900 AD. But the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, with that, we have a complete Old Testament manuscript as old as 100 BC and many full book manuscripts as old as 250 BC. So here's something interesting. P people who take the Bible seriously, when this discovery was made, they wanted to see, well, is this consistent or did someone change something along the way? Which is a great question. The Bible that we have, which we've based on texts from 980 AD, is the text from 900 AD the same as these texts that we have from 250 BC? And here's what the, here's the amazing truth. When, like when people tell you that there's inconsistencies among translations, here's what, here's something amazing. The entire manuscript is 99.7% identical. 
which means that with, with the variations that are attributed to the changing of spelling that took place over, the, over a, a thousand years. Much like many years ago, Stephen was frequently spelled with a PH, but now it's much more common to spell it with a V. This like 99.7% accuracy and almost 100% of the, of, the, of the inconsistencies dealt with changes of spelling that take place over the course of time. This is unbelievable consistency. The book of Isaiah scroll, which is from, from the Dead Sea, which is 66 chapters, which I believe is the longest book in the Old Testament, not, not including Psalms, had three words spelled differently from the AD 900 text. The En Gedi scroll found at the Dead Sea site, the book of Leviticus, has 100% accuracy to the 900 AD text. I mean, this is unbelievable consistency from a trans from copy, 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 over the course of over a thousand years that people took that much care to accurately copy and make sure that it was preserved is unreal. When you read the Old Testament, you can trust it is a very accurate to the original message. When you get to the New Testament, sometimes people will argue that portions of the New Testament were still being written into the 200s AD. If that was true, it would mean people were writing the story of Jesus who had like seventh hand knowledge. I got my message from my daddy and he got it from his grandma and she got it from her grandma and he got it from his grandpappy who says he was there, but we don't even know if he was there. And here's why this is an important thing that we have to actually understand. Most historians will say it takes about 70 to 80 years for a myth or a legend to grow because the people who could refute the claims died and could no longer dispute the claims. Now, this is an important claim. For people who say that the Bible was being written, the message of the New Testament was being written 200 years after Jesus lived, this is why sometimes people will argue, well, see, it's a, it's a myth, it's a legend that grew, there's no actual Jesus. They'll say that, but this is important for us to understand. There is an event that matters a great deal. In 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed by the Romans. Do you know how much mention there is of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the New Testament? Zero. None. Like Jesus predicts it before his death, and then there is no mention of it ever again in the New Testament. Now, this to, to Jewish authors, to people who had their entire background in Judaism, if the temple had been destroyed they would have mentioned it in the troubles and the persecution that they were undergoing. On top of that, there would have been an incredible opportunity to say, and Jesus predicted this and he got it right. This thing that we thought was unbelievable and could never happen. And when Jesus said it and we were standing there and heard it, we were like, the temple is not going to fall again. Are you being ridiculous? But Jesus prophesied it and Jesus was right about that too. If the authors of the New Testament had heard and lived through the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it would be all over the letters and the pages of the New Testament, but it's not there at all, which, tells, which should tell us something. It hadn't happened yet, which means 
The New Testament had been completed before 70 AD, less than 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means had the claims of the New Testament of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection not been true, there would have been a whole bunch of people stepping up and going, uh, yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, it, it, it never happened. The only people who ever did that were the religious leaders trying to shut down the Jesus movement. And what we see in the pages of scripture is that the, many of the religious leaders after the resurrection actually changed their tone and became followers of Jesus. Over 500 people, those who saw Jesus after he was resurrected, almost every single one of them gave their lives not for what they believed, not for what they read, but for what they saw personally. And before they gave their lives, they went crazy writing about Jesus and copying what was written about Jesus because they believed it to be authoritative words written by people who spent time with Jesus. There exists 5,686 partial or complete Greek gospel manuscripts. To put that into perspective, perspective. That outnumbers the next most copied work of ancient literature by almost 100 times. That was the work of Aristotle. is 1,400 years between when he lived and wrote in our oldest manuscript, and there's 49 copies. We have 5,686 partial or complete Greek gospel manuscripts. In the New Testament, there's less than 100 years between writing and our oldest manuscript, and we've got 5,686 copies of it. When there's that many copies, it would be natural that you would compare for accuracy, and they are astoundingly accurate to each other. People took careful measures to make sure that what they believed to be the most important message ever was copied accurately. When it comes to preserving the Bible, has the preservation been reliable or did people change it along the way to fit their agenda? It is far more, we have far more reliable documents than any other ancient literature. The Bible has been preserved incredibly well. And then finally, we move to the idea of translation. Translation is the scientific and academic process of rendering from one language into another language. In the Old Testament, this actually this is interesting. The translation began with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the original texts that were written in Hebrew, written in Hebrew. But as many of you may know, the original Hebrew was written without vowels. So it's written with only consonants. And so over the course of time, people were reading it, reading it, reading it. And eventually it came to a point where language had changed and most Jews did not, most of the Hebrew people did not read without the vowels. They needed the vowels. And so the priests developed over a long period of time the ability to carefully and meticulously place vowels within the Hebrew text. This became known as what we have already referred to today as the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is the very first translation of any form of scripture. It's the Old Testament text. They were written in ancient Hebrew without vowels. This was the text that put the vowels in, that put the vowels in. And then the next portion of translation is where they took, because many Hebrew people, many of the, Israel, the nation of Israel had been dispersed after the, after the exile and, and began to speak and read in, in ancient Greek, they wanted to translate the Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And so we have this translation called the Septuagint. It's the, it's the Hebrew Bible translated into ancient 
Greek. There's an incredible amount of manuscripts along the way of that. But it went from ancient Hebrew to ancient Hebrew with the vowels to ancient Greek because God wanted his word to follow his people wherever they were in whatever language they could speak. And now when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament scriptures are written primarily in Greek with some original documents having a little bit of Aramaic written in them, but they're primarily written in Greek with translations beginning exactly when the New Testament was officially canonized by the Roman Catholic Church in 382. When that happened, when the, when, when the Bible was officially viewed as complete, immediately, because it was in the Roman Catholic Church, in a Roman-speaking world, you could imagine that the Roman Catholic Church wanted to get this Bible into the hands of priests and pastors in a language that they could read for themselves, whether they ever knew the original Hebrew or Greek languages. And so they translated the entire scriptures into what has become known in history as the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the entire Bible, Old Hebrew and New Testament and Greek, translated into Latin. Latin, by that point, was the primary language of the, of the empire, and they wanted to make sure that the priests and the pastors could get the, the Bible in their own language, so they translated the entirety of it into, into, into Latin. It was commissioned by Pope Damasus in 382. It was completed in 405. And then, unfortunately, over the next 1,000 years, the church changed dramatically. And it consolidated power among themselves and refused to translate the Bible into any languages other than Latin, despite the spread of many other common languages. And then we get to the Reformation. And the Reformation, as far as you being able to understand and trust your Bible, is one of the most important time periods in human history. There's a man named John Wycliffe. He was an English priest in the late 1300s. He commissioned his fellow English priests to translate the Latin Bible Vulgate into English for the first time. He died in 1384 before seeing it completed. When it was completed, it would finally be completed in 1395. For his desire to get the Bible into the language of ordinary people so that they could study Scripture for themselves, he was excommunicated and condemned. And when he died, the Pope ordered his body and bones to be burned so that his body would have no chance of raising at the return of Christ. You think the Pope had some beef with John Wycliffe? You bet your bones. John Wycliffe did. Anyway, so John, then the, one of the next important figures in the Reformation was a guy named John Huss. We don't talk about him whole, a whole lot, but John Huss was a Czech priest in Prague who roughly translated the entire Bible from original languages into the language of the Czech people. So where John Wycliffe was said, I want to translate from the Vulgate to, to English, John Huss said, I want to go directly from the Hebrew and the Greek into the language of my people. He taught the Czech people in his church that if Scripture and church doctrine ever came into conflict, they must side with Scripture and push for change in the church's doctrine. For those actions, he was executed by being burned alive. These guys all gave their lives to get the language, to get the Bible into common everyday people languages. Then we have Martin Luther in, in, in Germany. He wrote the 95 Theses, included that the, the idea that for the spiritual good of every individual, the Bible must be translated into every common language so that men could read the Bible for themselves. He started the translation of the Bible into German in 1518. He completed the New Testament translation in 1522, and for the first time, printed it in common language. 
used the printing press to print it in common language. By 1534, the entire Bible was translated and ready for print in German. Luther, as many of us know, was condemned and excommunicated for his work. He said, fine, I don't think a pope has the right to excommunicate anyone that God has saved. And then you finally have William Tyndale, who carried on the work of John Wycliffe. He was a close friend of Martin Luther, whose beliefs got him kicked out of England. When John Wycliffe was excommunicated and and burned alive, William Tyndale headed to Germany to complete John Wycliffe's work. It got him kicked out of England, so he took up residence with Luther. In 1526, he completed and printed the first translation of the New Testament from Greek to English, and he printed 3,000 copies. When they were received in London, all but two were captured and burned. By 1535, he had completed virtually the entire Bible and printed it when his location and identity were betrayed and he was executed at the stake for his work. Upon his arrest, upon his arrest, this dude was a baller. Upon his arrest, here's what he told the arresting officers. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Now, this is fascinating today because in America, there is actually a Bible publishing company called Tyndale House Publishing. It's, 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 it's named and inspired by William Tyndale. And, and they put together a translation of the Bible that's called the New Living Translation. It's one that I actually preach out of a lot of times. In fact, I believe the verses that we read today were from the New Living Translation. And what, and what when Tyndale said, if, I, you know, if God gives me the years the boy who drives the plow will know more, more scripture than the Pope. Well, the boy who drove the plow was typically around 12 years old. And so when, the, when, the, when Tyndale House Publishing commissioned the New Living Translation, they said, we want to set the reading ability at a 12-year-old's reading ability to stick with the, with the instructions of, of our inspiration of William Tyndale. We want the Bible to be readable by a 12-year-old. It's amazing. Today, today, this work still goes on. Today, we have the Bible app, which has been made available in so many languages. It's unbelievable. You can read it in in any language. Matter of fact, there are some languages that are just absolutely hilarious. If you want to read them, you should. There's there's one that's like Hawaiian pidgin or something like that. And it's unreal that that's a, a, a language, but that's a language people understand. So we want the Bible in their language through the Bible app. It's unbelievable. In September, 2020, the sign language Bible was completed after 39 years of work. In March, 2021, the IF Gathering, which is an online women's conference, pledged $1.5 million to fund two Bible translations into previously un translated languages. In September 2021, the First Nations version was completed, which is, it was an Indian translation of the New Testament. It was not translated by Americans into native languages. It was translated by native pastors into English that uses familiar terminology within Native American populations. And here's the thing. The reason this work has to continue, it's estimated that today, one billion people on the planet don't have access to a Bible in language that they understand, which is one in eight. One in eight people around the world do not have access to the Bible in a language that they can read for themselves. The work has to continue. But here's the question. If people have given their lives 
to make sure that the Bible is translated into the common language. Don't you think that those same people would take incredible care to make sure that the Bible is accurately translated and without an agenda, without a, a, a big thing happening behind the scenes, but just to say we simply want to get the accurate word of God into the language of common people. And they defied popes, and they defied churches, and they defied arresting officers, and they defied all the way till their own death because they cared about you getting the word of God so that you could read it for yourself. So here's the question. Can the Bible be trusted? Our question from the beginning. Can the Bible be trusted? Absolutely. How do we know that we have the, the, that what we have is the original word, is what was originally communicated? Because it has been incredibly, the inspired word of God has been incredibly well preserved and has been meticulously translated. And people have given their lives to preserve it and people have given their lives to translate it so that you can have it today. There is no work on earth that has such a consistent message over time and over multiple authors. It is inspired. There is no work on earth that has been preserved with such care and such, such accuracy. It has been incredibly well preserved. And there is no work on earth which with people so dedicated to getting the message right and in the hands of so many because they believe the word to be the word of God. And so here's what I want to challenge you. As you learn to read, as you begin to learn to read the Bible for yourself, as you take your Bible reading to the next level, can you trust the Bible? Oh yeah. You can put your trust in the, in the words of Scripture because people have given their lives to preserve it, because it's inspired and it's evident throughout history that God has been speaking to people through the Word of God. And it has been incredibly well, well translated and it's been kept incredibly accurate for thousands of years. You can trust the Bible. You can trust the Word of God. And as you grow in your trust of the Word of God, guess what happens as we said last week? You grow in your trust of the author of God himself. And that's what we ultimately want because God wants a relationship with you. And God wants a relationship with me. And we learn about that relationship and how it works and how we approach our Heavenly Father on the pages of Scripture. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the men and women who have given their lives and dedicated their lives to preserving it well. Thank you for the men and women who heard your message and wrote it down and preserved it and passed it along and passed it along so that we could have it today. Thank you that it has been incredibly well preserved and that it's been kept incredibly consistent for thousands of years. Thank you for the men and women who gave their lives to make sure that we could have it in our languages today so that we could read it for ourselves, so that we could know you for ourselves without a priest or a pastor standing in between us. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you that it's inspired. Thank you that it's been preserved. And thank you that it's been translated so well so that we can know with confidence that what we're reading has come from you. So God, as we help us, as we learn to read, help us to trust you. Help us to trust your word. And as we trust your word, help us to trust you more. We love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.